Are you here? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> amen to that. Um, this is the last one uh, in, in my series I've been doing over the last four weeks. And uh, this one has been uh, pre- really probably most challenging of all, bringing it to a close. And uh, so much so that actually I've actually preached this sermon before recently because actually like last night um, I was going over through so many points in my head that as I went to sleep I kind of dreamt that I'd done the whole sermon before. <laughs> so it seems to go quite well in my dreams so I just got to like, kind of reiterate a lot of things I said. So, But I wanted to tie up any loose ends and bring this thing and bring it all together uh, in this last one that we're doing here. And I want to start by saying the that I wanted to do a series, I felt God was leading us to do a series on facing adversity, as I said in the first week, because we all have different troubles, all the different struggles within our lives. And I think that was something that's really prone this month, if we look at what's going on in the world and all the things that's been going on, we need to understand how do we face these certain things, these issues. And I thought, you know, let's do it through the Psalms. So we've done it through the Psalms, so if you're a visitor here, um, or just to refresh your memories, uh, we went through quite a few psalms. Well, we went through predominantly three. We went through uh, Psalm 57, and that was with David and Saul. And that was concentrating on adversity from outside, like friends and family, friends and outside society. And then we looked at adversity from a bit closer to home, like within us, with our family. So that's why we looked at, uh, in relation, David's relationship to Absalom. That's why we looked at Psalm 3. And then we looked at Psalm... 52? Yeah? 51? 51? 51? Okay. That's good. Uh, so many Psalms. <laughs> and, uh, and we looked at David looking inward at himself. And so I thought, those are the three great areas. So, what could my fourth one be to sort of finish off the series? So, I thought, well, actually, uh, we've been going through the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel. So, why not flip right back, right forward rather, to the end of 2 Samuel and find out what what's going on and we come and then I found this psalm that we're probably not aware of because it's not in the book of uh, psalms it's actually in the book of 2 Samuel and it's uh, the first eight verses the first seven verses of 2 Samuel chapter 23 and that's going to be our psalm today but before we get there I wanted to talk about why I chose this, the title in the kingship qualities yes it's kind of a bit behind the scenes if you kind of guess because they are three kings but I really wanted to focus home on the fact that even though we're not kings and queens as, as such, we're all Christian, we're all leaders. You're, we're all leaders in some degree or another, whether it's in our home with our husband and our wife, whether it's to our children, whether it's in our work, whether it's with our friends, we all have to lead in some degree. And that was what I wanted to kind of hammer home to this morning. And that's why the title of this preach is <coughs> Leading in Adversity. How do we lead in adversity? What quite often we've been looking at how David kind of looked inward at himself and how he dealt with himself. But today we're going to look how did he transform that and how did he look outwards and say, okay, this is what's going on. But now we have to look how do we lead others when we ourselves are going through really tough times? Because that's often the case. Tough times in marriages, tough times in relationships, tough times with friends, with family, all sorts of things. We still have responsibilities that we just can't get away from. So we have to learn. How, what are the things that David says are the qualities that we need to learn? <coughs> so that's what we're going to be facing today, looking at today. Um, I've got these flyers before I go into it. 
They just, you may have noticed from what most of my slides this week, uh, throughout the series have had this face. Does anyone recognize this face? I thought it was obvious when I did it. Does anyone do it? David, yes. Brilliant. It's Mike, yeah, everyone's like, what? What's that? Michelangelo's David's. It's kind of to refresh our memories. So maybe you haven't necessarily thought of it, but it's actually meant to kind of be like, okay, this is what's going on with David's life. So I purposely chose that image thinking we would get it, but maybe we all didn't, but it's good that some of us did. <laughs> but I've got these flyers, and they're to basically to sort of take home by, uh, by yourself and to remember the series, or maybe to hand to someone who is particularly going through a tough time, and maybe they need to hear and understand a bit about what we've been talking about these last four weeks. So we're going to have them at the back. Feel free to take them out. Um, and feel free to email me um, different perspectives on what you think the series has been like, which would be helpful for me uh, is my uh, time with Mordens. But anyway, enough of me. I want to get back to today. So let's start today. We often been looking at the background behind the Psalms. So the background behind Psalm 23 is basically the whole of 1 and 2 Samuel. But we're not going to cover all that today. So I want to just basically look at the, chapter, the uh, chapter before, which is chapter 22. So if you've got your Bibles with you, or if you would like a Bible, please raise your hands. And we'll just skim over chapter 22 really quick. <coughs> chapter 22 is a psalm that David wrote, and it's very similar to, uh, to Psalm 118. I think it's 118, either 118 or 18. It's very similar. And what he's guessing, and I think, why was this placed at the end of the book of 2 Samuel? And if you read through it, it mentions a lot of things that we've been discussing recently over the last few weeks in terms of what God is to us. He mentions that God is my shield and my stronghold, my refuge, we've done that. Uh, from his temple we heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Of Christ to God were heard from him. And he rescued me because he delighted in me. And you see the humble people. So before we get to the very end of the book of 2 Samuel, he's building this climax of what God has done through, for, through him and for him all throughout his life. God has been his refuge. God has been his strength. God has been his hope. All these sort of things. And it all leads up into this tiny little psalm, which is Psalm 23. Well, not Psalm 23, chapter 23. So let's read it together. Well, I'll read it to you, rather. You can follow with me. <clears throat> These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man who anointed by God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the lights of a morning at sunrise, on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. The evil men are to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered <coughs> with the hands. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or a shaft of a spear. They are burned up when they lie, where they lie. Interesting psalm to kind of look at, isn't it, today? So I thought I'd tackle this, and I've come up with some four 
remaining qualities, I think, that we could extract from this that are key to us as leaders and as Christians. Um, these are very huge subjects, and actually you could probably do a good preach or even a series on each particular one. So I find it quite difficult, in a sense, to really narrow it down. Excuse me. But I really hope we kind of come to grips with these. So I just want to go through the four things that I think we can understand through this psalm, this piece of writing. So the first point, the qualities of a good, good, good Christian leader. Know God's voice. Number two, has the fear of the Lord. Number three, is wise. And number four, he offers hope. And these are the things we're going to be looking at today. So let's start with the first one. Know God's word, or know how to hear his voice. When David talks himself basically as a prophet, it's the learning how he can actually hear from God and then speak out. And we hear that when we read the first, when we read it in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord speaks to me and by his word is on my tongue. So in other words, he hears from God and then he speaks what God is saying to him. And that ultimately is what a prophet would do. They would hear from God and they would speak it out. And often when we talk about hearing God's voice, it's an interesting topic, isn't it? Because I think we thought we have different imaginations and different thoughts towards this. Maybe we see God in creation, and that's true. We do all these different things. But maybe the one place I think that we tend to neglect, most of all, is that God speaks to us through his word. And I, th- I think that's one of the key things when I read this. I thought, you know, people do forget that. I was once in, with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and so we were, had a week on learning to hear God's voice. And they gave this illustration and they said there was a church and they were going to go and do this rally or they were going to do this um, um, outreach and they were getting all fired up. And then one person in the church stood up and said, we shall conquer this land just as Abraham led the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he sat back down. And then two seconds later, thus says the Lord, I got it wrong. It wasn't Abraham, it was Moses. <laughs> And we think, you know, we have this idea of, thus says the Lord. You know, we have this idea, God has said this, and we can get it wrong. But we've got to try and understand what God says to us, and how can we hear from him? How can we understand what he's saying in the most troubled times of our lives, when things seem to be at their worst? And I think if you look at the story of David, one of the things you really get to understand is that he meditated on God's word day and night. And we see that in Psalm 1, 2, verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and the law, he meditates on it day and night. Now, I don't think that's to literally mean that he was thinking of God and doing all this stuff 24-7. But the word of Lord was sweet to his lips and sweet to his mind. And it was something he was constantly wanting to tackle and constantly wanting to be in. Even at the times we've read when he was running from Saul or when he was running from Absalom or when he was having the most terrible times, he had to always come back to the word of the Lord. And I think when I read this, I I saw a little uh, cross-reference to Joshua 1.8 and I thought this is really fascinating. And it relates this so well. This is Joshua 1.8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous and you shall have good success. Joshua, who was his military leader, before he was even about to go and enter the promised land and conquer it, 
was told that first and foremost, the word of the Lord should not depart from your mouth. It was vital, it was important for every other aspect there was to follow. It was vital and relevant for the prosperity of the Israel. It was vital and relevant in terms of prosperity and actually achieving the conquests. But the first and foremost, the foundation of all things is that it should not depart from his mouth. And I think that's really key for us today as Christians. Like, How often do we really come to grips with the Bible and read it? Or to put it another way, in order to live out the Bible, we need to immerse ourselves in the Bible. In order to live out the Bible, we need to immerse ourselves in the Bible. And there isn't much talk, I was going to put another heading, but this I guess would be a subheading, would be devotion. There isn't much talk necessarily about David's devotional life. But we can understand that it, the word of the Lord was true to him, and the word of the Lord was important and relevant to him. And there was a survey done on missionaries, saying, what is the thing that you most fear of all during your missionary service? And there was a questionnaire, and it ranged from fear of death, fear of disease, fear of family life, die, family member dying, <coughs> sexual temptation, or, and, the, and there was another one which said fear of, of losing my devotion with God. And when we talk about devotion, we're talking about our time with God. That's what I'm talking about. That was their biggest thing. And often you would think that the most spiritualist people would have great relationships with God, but that isn't always the case, is it? When I started Moorlands, I can be honest with you, my first year I thought, you know, when I started tackling the Moorlands and do study theology, my devotional time, my quiet time with God is going to be so great and I'm going to grow and grow and grow. And I went to Moorlands and I have to say this properly, otherwise it makes more than sound really bad, but my devotional life went down and down and down because my time wasn't spent with God. In that sense, my time was learning about my essays. I was spending time in the Bible, but that's completely different than actually spending time with God. And I think sometimes we do that. And that is really important. And we keep our spirituality to ourselves we take our devotion times. We don't. We had like a fellowship break now, and sometimes I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes you don't know what to say to people. You have the whole mundane. How was your week? You know, you are interested in how their week was, but you, how was your week? Oh, it's good. How the kids? Yeah. For me, it's the same thing every single week. Jed doesn't sleep. I'm tired. Jed doesn't sleep. Candice is tired. We're both tired. That's just basically. That's just basically our lives. So if you ask us how we're doing, you're going to hear tired. So. But come free and ask us anyway. Because <laughs> we like we love to tell people we're tired. <laughs> <coughs> but we don't talk about our spiritual life. When was the last time you went up to someone and said, how's your relationship with God going? We talk about how's your relationship with your kids, how's your relationship with your husband, how's your relationship with your wife. But we don't seem to talk about how's your relationship with God. And I think that's a sad thing that we need to maybe think about and kind of think, well, if we want to grow and we want to be as a community, maybe we need to encourage each other in our walk with God. And that includes being honest and asking people, how is your walk with God going? Are you, many, are you finding time to spend with him? One of the most common terms in the Bible is, in the New Testament is the word saints. And obviously that refers to us. 
and I know we know it anyway, but I'll just reiterate it. You know, when we talk about a saint, we're not talking about a specific person who has achieved several different things and a miracle and all these different things. The saints are basically us. And it's mentioned 60 times within the, old, within the New Testament. And all of those times, apart from one, it's plural. Why is that important? Because it's saying that our spirituality should be communal. We're here for each other. And even that one time where it isn't actually plural, it's every saint. So it's still plural in the, in the context. We need to be talking to each other about our spiritual lives rather than making a privatised thing. I said last week we have private lives and we have public lives, but often our spiritual life is just private. But actually it should be public as well to encourage one another to grow. So how does that relate in terms of adversity into leading? Well, when you look at the story of Israel and their kings, the kings weren't necessarily responsible, in a sense, for the state of Israel's spirituality, their, their, their closeness to God. But when you read it, you find out when the, when the king was close to God, the nation did well and they prospered. And when the king was away from God, they fell dramatically and were taken over constantly. So although he wasn't necessarily responsible for them in that sense, I think he was still accountable to God for setting a good example for his people. And I think that's the same for us too, that in our lives, maybe we have families, maybe we have kids, maybe we have husband, maybe we have a wife, we have families. We're not responsible for their salvation because only they can decide to come to know God, but we are accountable to God for setting the best example for them. I am accountable, I believe, to God for my, the way I present myself for Elias and for Jedediah, that they would see me and they would at least see what a true Christian is by my example. But too often it's, something the, it's the other way around. When I speak to Elias and I'm really angry, I say, you do what I do, not what I say. No, you do what I say, you don't do what I do. <laughs> That's the moment. That's why I say to him, Candace taught me that. <laughs> And that's often the case, but we need to be setting examples for, not just for our families, maybe you're not married here, maybe you're, um, maybe you're a parent or maybe you're friends. We need to be setting examples for everybody. And to hear that, most of all, we have to, like we go back to the beginning, we have to know that we have to hear God's voice and we have to spend time with his words. <coughs> the next area that I really wanted to focus on, that I think as a quality, is the fear of the Lord. Now this is uh, something that I really, really enjoy looking into, and uh, I thought, oh, if I bring this into a preach, it's going to be very difficult, because I'm going to want to go on for ages, so I've tried to basically skim it down, so I hope this kind of makes sense. But when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're not talking about a scared fear that we can't come anywhere near him. In my family, we're all scared stiff as spiders. We can't stand them. We have nightmares about them. I mean, the only, I kind of feel like I have to deal with it because I'm the, the man and I have to actually do it. But usually I just shoo them away and pretend that it's done or whatever. I have, a, I have this terrible fear that I can't go anywhere near them. And that's, meant to be, that's not meant the way it's meant to be with God. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's more of a reverential awe towards him. It's more of actually understanding who you are in the presence of who God really is. It's not being scared to come before him. 
but it's realizing who he really is. And some of the best ways to understand that, because I could go on and on, and my words will probably won't make sense, is in, to look at scripture. If you go on to the next slide, we see that after, um, is, after the Israelites have been led out of captivity, after all that had gone on through the beginning of Exodus, through all their trials and tribulations that they faced, and they got taken through the Red Sea, and they faced the other side. We read this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So amongst this time of jubilee and happiness, they trusted in God because they saw his faithfulness. But they also had this fear of him because they knew of his hatred of godlessness towards the um, Egyptians. So we can look at the fear of the Lord in the sense that it's this reverential between us and God. But it's also expressed different ways throughout the Bible. And during the time of David, it was mainly used, <coughs> it was mainly expressed in the, uh, as a faithfulness to the covenant. And this is usually inseparable from God's actual works and deeds that he did for them. If we go on to the next slide. <coughs> We see that as Moses was coming to a point where he was giving the summary of everything that they're going to do and how they're going to lead into the promised land, he says these things here. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall fear the Lord, and then we read in Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. He is your God. He has done for you these great and terrifying things that you have seen with your own eyes. So what is Moses basically trying to say here in terms of the fear of the Lord? I think he's trying to say this. That the reverential awe towards God in his covenant is expressed in trust and obedience. Trust and obedience are the key to the fear of the Lord. And this is usually the result of God doing a big act. Read in Elijah how the fire came down on Mount Carmel. The people fell down in the fear of the Lord. The glory of the Lord came down in the temple. And people had the fear of the Lord. They realized who he was and who they were in comparison to him. And I think that's such an amazing concept to really kind of come to grips with, the, the fear of the Lord. That often, and it's right to think of God as our, often we use these terms daddy and things like that, which I'm not against at all. But sometimes it doesn't do justice to who God in his majestic kind of awesomeness is. And if, we, he came, if the full glory of the Lord came down in this place right now, we'll most likely be flat on our faces because we couldn't handle the glory of the Lord. And we are meant to walk in faith and obedience to that. And that goes hand in hand with it. So how does David use this term? Going back to um, chapter 23. Well, we see in verse 3, it ends with, The rock of Israel said to me, When the one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, 
like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. The intention of a spiritual Christian leader to have the fear of the Lord is that he wants others to prosper. The intention of us to have the fear of the Lord is that we would have the benefit of others in our minds rather than our own. And that's the true sign of leadership, isn't it? To not be so consumed by yourself, but always to be thinking about others. And David does that. And I think David could mean it either way. He could mean it in the sense that it's to do with faith and obedience, that you need to walk in this way in order to make things come to fruition. But he's also meaning it in the sense that it is being before God and having this holy fear of God and knowing who he is. But it's not for our benefit purely, but for those around us. <coughs> when I came up with this concept of, when I saw this concept of the fear of the Lord, I thought, well, I have to kind of move on how it kind of affects the whole idea of wisdom. So the third point is that we're meant to be wise as spiritual leaders. And often, fear of the Lord is associated with wisdom. If you go on to the next slide, we see the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 9 and in Psalms. And in Job, we read the fear of the Lord that is wisdom. So what is this connection between the fear of the Lord and wisdom? How are they related? I bet we all know that, kind of, that bit in, in Proverbs. And I think if you look at Proverbs, that bit where it says, we talk about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. It's, and everything after that is playing out that one line. All the things that come after that, all the things that describe how we are meant to live as life, as Christians, how we're meant to understand the world we live in, it all comes from this one line, which is the fear of the Lord. And what is the connection between that? I think the connection is what we've just been saying that is to do with faith and obedience. And that to have a clear understanding of the world that we live in, or if you want to put it in their terms, for them to have a clear understanding of the world that they lived in, they needed to know the word of the Lord and they had to follow it in obedience and in trust. And when you follow God's words in obedience and trust, everything else, the result of that is wisdom. Everything else that follows. The source of true wisdom it is the source of true wisdom to understand the world from God's perspective and not our own. And this naturally leads on to Jesus as described in 1 Corinthians 24 as God's wisdom. How do we bring this into the picture? What does it mean when we say Christ is our wisdom? Or Christ is God's wisdom? Well, I, reckon, think, I think it basically means this. That Christ is the full revelation of God. Just as God needed to reveal himself through his word, Christ is a full revelation of that. He fulfilled that. Just as God, in the Old Testament, when he was doing different things, and he did saving acts, Christ did the ultimate saving acts of actually dying on a cross and the resurrection and that all who believed in him would have life, eternal life. He matched this. He had the acts to go with it. And when he died, and all of us can have faith who believe in Jesus Christ can come before God. But there's more to it, I think, than that. I think it's the fact that everything that Jesus taught 
about wisdom and stuff is is from the mind of God. It's understanding God's perception on life and our world and how we do our dealings, day-to-day activities. And that is why when you look at the New Testament and why you look at the Sermon on the Mount and why you see different things in there like that are so countercultural to today's society, such as loving our enemies that we've been talking about. Because they would seem foolishness to the world. But these are actually wise. Or to put it like a better way, true wisdom is the result of being related to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what true wisdom is. And a king and a leader is meant to be wise. When we face adversity, it's hard to be... Sometimes it's hard to be wise because our personal feelings interject and we don't know how to deal with life. Sometimes we want to do things that are difficult but we don't have the courage to necessarily do it. And sometimes the world just never sees and understands the wisdom of God. As it says in the 1 Corinthians 3, otherwise why would they have nailed Jesus to the cross if they understood the true wisdom? And that's why we shouldn't be seeking as leaders to be understanding the wisdom of this world. Yes, we need to understand the way this world works, but ultimately we need to be looking to Christ, looking to him as our guidance, and through acting in obedience and in trusting Christ, that will then lead on to actually having wisdom in our day-to-day lives. Wisdom in our day-to-day lives, how we deal with our relationships, how we deal when things are getting really tough, how to deal when we maybe have something wrong with us, a death, conflict, all these different things, all these different areas that could be causing us struggles. True wisdom comes from knowing Jesus and through a relationship with him. And that leads on to my last point, is that a leader <coughs> is to offer hope. And we see this at the very, very last bit of, the, of the, um, verse 8 to 7, where it talks about worthless man, the comparison worthless man and a righteous man, basically. A leader is meant to be offering hope, and I think that's one of the biggest things when we look at the world today, is that the, ch- the world needs hope. And when you look at leaders that are rising up, I mentioned the other week about <coughs> Trump and Hillary Clinton, what, the hope that they are bringing for their nation, well, you, you can decide. Well, the hope for our nation. We need leaders in our nations that, will, that we, they can give us hope. But ultimately, the hope that other people give us, when we think about hope, is just an uncertainty. It's like our wishful thinking, isn't it? I wish that this would happen. But you don't know for certain that it's going to. But that's the total opposite of a biblical hope. A biblical hope in Jesus is not that this may happen. It's that it will happen. We can have hope in Christ. As we go on to, if we leave the next verse, from 1 Peter 1, verse 3, 6. Blessed be... <coughs> Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfeigning, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power after being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved for various trials. And I think this is twofold when I read this. Personally, what is being said in this book, yeah, to Peter, not Peter. That ultimately, you'll, you may be facing trials and things like that, that are the worst things that you've ever faced and you don't know how to deal with it. And you don't know where your hope's gone. Or maybe like you're going through different things, you don't know where you're going to go when you die. Maybe you question that. That's one thing we all think about, whether we are Christians or non-Christians, is what happens when I die. It's a question that we've all faced. And here in this verse, we have assurance that as Christians, when we die, we know where we go, and we have this hope, this knowledge, if you like, that we are going to heaven. It's a future hope. But it's also a present hope. It's a hope for every situation that we're going through right now. It's a hope for every one of us who are going through troubled times or facing different things in our life. Jesus Christ is is the ultimate hope. And without Jesus, there is no hope for us. And that is why the power and the majesty of the cross is, is so incredible. And when we talk about the cross, sometimes we think we understand it. But I think you'll never understand it. I can study it as much as I want to for my time in mornings for three years. And so I'm old and grey. <coughs> and we're celebrating my 80th birthday in this church. But I'll never fully understand the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the effects and the power of what Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection for me to be my living hope that even though what I go through today is my hardest trial that I know that God is with me and God is for me and if God is for me nothing else can stand against me so as I come to a close and I kind of come bring this all this series in together I want to say these are possibly the, th- the four things maybe that we need to resemble as Christian leaders within our homes. Maybe there's a quality that you need to be thinking that maybe you need to focus on a bit more. Maybe you need to understand what it really means to fear the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, oh, I've just thought of God as a daddy, but I've never actually realised him as my great king. And actually, I can come before him and open my arms and run into him, but also maybe I need to actually come before him on bended knees in submission to him. Maybe that's something we need to, you need to think about. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe you've always come to God on a bended knee thinking that you can never come before him and God's saying, I am fearful, but I'm also loving. Come to me. We all have different struggles and we're all likely to face different struggles and we're all likely to forget 99% of what this four weeks has been about, possibly, but in five or six years' time, maybe, maybe less. But the word, if we keep our eyes on God and we keep our eyes in the words, then these truths should always be clear to us. Series are great to remind ourselves when we're going through troubled times that God is here, but nothing beats spending time with God yourself. Maybe that's something you need to spend. Maybe you need to have a uh, family devotion. Candice, when I went to South Africa, would have a family devotion. I never experienced this before, but her mum would get Candice and her sister together and they would get together and they would sing and they would worship and they would open the Bible. And I'm thinking, ah, 
It's fantastic. Do, do I do that in my home? Uh, no, I don't. Maybe I should introduce it. Sometimes it's not quite as easy as that in our homes. Sometimes family life isn't quite that, doesn't allow for that, which is fine. But it just if the things that we can try and figure out, things we can be creative with ways to spend time with God and influencing our family and the loved ones, and ultimately not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. I just want to invite the band to come up <coughs> as they just come to an end. And just to ask you to close your eyes just for a second, for a little bit of time. And just the thing, is there a quality within these four things? Do you wish that you could hear God's voice better going through the hardest time that you're going through? Because at the moment you feel God is so completely distant that you can't hear him. When actually God is knocking on your door and maybe you don't know how to open that door to him. But you need to hear God's voice. <coughs> or maybe you need to have the greater fear of the Lord as we've been talking about. Or maybe you need greater wisdom. Maybe you're going through a troubled time in your work or your life that you need God's wisdom more so than ever. And it says, you know, in the Bible, we're meant to ask for wisdom, asking it will be given to us. Maybe you need more wisdom. Maybe you need to offer hope to somebody who's going through a time that you can't bear to understand what they're going through. Maybe you are fine, but you know someone who's going through just the hardest time of their life, and you need to be the person to go alongside them and offer them hope. Just two minutes, just sit and just this little one minute. Well, let's just think what are the things that we think we could bring before God and that we need to improve on as leaders God, I want to thank you that you are our refuge, you are our strength, you are our rock, you are our hiding place, your steadfast love is always for us, you are an anchor when we are blown to and through, you are our peace. I thank you, Lord Borsa, that you are the leader of heaven's armies, that you are a king and you are powerful, and you are righteous, and you are a God of justice for those that you love. I thank you, Lord God, that for whoever one of us is going through this day, that you are with us and you never leave us. And by having faith in you, Jesus, we can bring all our concerns to you and that we will grow in spiritual maturity as men and women of God. That we will grow in wisdom. That we will grow in the fear of the Lord. That we will grow to know your, and hear your voice better. That we will grow to think of others and offer hope to people more. 
And all for the sake of others, God, but for the sake of giving you glory. We thank you, Lord, for your complete majesty. And we pray, Lord God, that you give us the courage to approach you, even in church, where sometimes we may not bow the knee because of thinking what people might think and what people might say. But sometimes, God, we need to bow before you in submission and surrender. And sometimes what's going inside needs to come outside in a physical action. And I pray, Lord God, if there's people here today who just really want and feel like they need to put, go on their knees before you, they wouldn't feel worried or anxious what other people would say, but we, there would be a freedom in this place that we could come before our God and King and present all our love and all our adoration and all our needs and requests and even our anger, Lord, to you, knowing that you are faithful and that you hear us. We pray this for us as a congregation and for those that we love and those that we long to see you and know you as friends and maybe our friends or family that we love and we want to come to know you as Jesus, as their Lord and Saviour. May we represent you the best that we could ever be, that when they see us, they would see Jesus. Amen. Do you want to come up, Dave?